Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 18, continuing our study of the reign of King Hezekiah. This morning we come to verses 1 through 12 of 2 Kings 18. Please give your attention to the word of God. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory, from watchtower to fortified city. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, he took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. The king of Assyria carried out the Israelites, carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Halah and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant. Even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, they neither listened nor obeyed. It's sad to say, but I honestly don't know of a lot of people who have come to believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior after the age of 60. But gladly, my father was one of them. Dad was a hard-working, blue-collar man's man who went to church every Sunday for two reasons. One, because his wife wanted to go, and secondly, because that's what a quote-unquote good man did in those days. But outside of those church services, I never really saw much in the way of indications of any interest in scripture or spiritual things or serving the Lord. But when he was in his early 60s, long after I'd left home, his brother, who he is very close to, died suddenly of a heart attack. And it shook my dad to his very foundations. My dad was a very stoic man, and so he didn't ever talk about that dark period of his life. But he came out of it with a new interest in scripture. My dad, being a relatively uneducated man, was never really much of a reader. And so one of my brothers or sisters, I don't remember which one, had the brilliant idea of purchasing for him the Bible on cassette. And so he sat there. He was retired by that point. 
and he sat there many hours every day listening to God's word with this new desire that the Holy Spirit had given him. And after a period of time, we began to see a real change in him, a change from the inside out. He had a new joy, a new peace, a new purpose to his life. He had experienced the miracle of new birth by God's grace. I've noticed this many times in my life that the Lord often uses the death of somebody very close to you in order to shake your foundations and make you deal with the important questions of life. To deal with eternal truths, truths about his real existence, his presence in the world. To deal with the inevitability of his judgment, the reality of sin, and the hope of eternal life. In essence, this is really what happened at this in this period of time that we're talking about, 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, in this little nation of Judah, they had experienced a death, a very close death in the family, so to speak. We have been studying it the last couple weeks. In chapter 17 of 2 Kings, it talked about the death of the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. That during... The years after the reign of Solomon, how God's people had been divided into two nations. The larger nation to the north, made up of the ten tribes to the north, and the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin to the south, making up the kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom was called Israel, and later, as we'll see in this era, Samaria, after its capital city, and then Judah, the smaller of the two nations. But we saw last week how God had sent the evil empire of Assyria against Israel in judgment. And it destroyed them, wiped them off the face of the planet. Scattered the people of the northern kingdom of Israel to the extents of the empire. After 200 years of consistent idolatry and rebellion, after 200 years of rejecting the prophets that the Lord had sent to warn them, Finally, the Lord's patience had run out. Their cup of iniquity was full, and he poured out judgment on the northern kingdom and basically destroyed the country, leaving Judah as the last tiny representative of the kingdom of God on earth. This tiny little kingdom, which was the next weak victim in the path of Assyria. And this is the reality that we see in the context, historical context of these passages we've been studying. You probably noticed at the end of the passage we just read, beginning in verse 9, it retells what we just studied in chapter 17. Basically from verse 9 to verse 12, it's a summary of chapter 17, which talks about this destruction of Israel. And the reason that it's repeated there, this brief summary, is to drive home the point, lest we miss the point, of understanding the context that Judah found itself in. We read these ominous words back in chapter 17, verse 9. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. Judah was in great spiritual and physical danger of God's judgment. 
The reign of King Ahaz had just ended, and Ahaz was one of Judah's worst kings. He had proven to be one of its worst leaders. Chapter 16, verses 2 and 3 says, Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, an offering to an idol. So what we see here as we come to chapter 18 is that in this dark hour, as the people of Judah are grieving over the death of their brothers in Israel, the death of that nation, and as they stood in the crosshairs of the armies, the powerful armies of Assyria, the Lord intervenes. And he sends a true reformation and revival, a work of the Holy Spirit that was one of the most powerful reformations and revivals in the history of the church, Old Testament and New Testament. And he did it through his servant, Hezekiah. Listen to the contrast. I just read the verse in the description back in chapter 16 of Ahaz. Listen now to chapter 18, verse 3, the description of Hezekiah, his son. It says, And Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. One quick side note to that. I praise God that the grace of God is far more powerful than bad parenting. Bad parents can do incredible damage, and some of you sitting here this morning have been badly damaged by bad parenting. But Hezekiah is a testimony to us all that the grace of God and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit is far more powerful than that destructive power of bad parenting. Notice how both Hezekiah and his father Ahaz are measured using the measuring stick of the reign of King David. Why is that? Well, partly because David was a good king. In spite of his even significant sin that we know about, he was a man after God's own heart. He loved the Lord. He was humble. He was faithful. He trusted in the Lord. And his reign was characterized by righteousness. But more than that, because David was still a sinner like you and me, but in spite of his flaws, God had given him a promise. Part of his covenant with his people He said to David, one day there is going to come a greater son of David. One of your descendants is going to take the throne over the kingdom of God and he's going to establish a kingdom of peace and righteousness that will endure forever. And so every king then is measured by how they measured up to David's trust in that promise. And the vast majority of them were found greatly wanting but not Hezekiah. Matter of fact, as you read this account of King Hezekiah's reign, in some ways he sounds as though he's graded higher than David himself. By studying the Reformation and revival that the Holy Spirit brought about during the reign of King Hezekiah, you and I can learn a lot about what to pray for and what to look for. In this day, 
of apostasy in the church and darkness in the culture around us. Our situation is not all that unlike Judah found itself in when Hezekiah came to the throne. What to look for and what to pray for that we might see reformation and revival in our day. And that should be the deep heart's desire of every follower of Jesus Christ. It's interesting, in chapter 18, there's one verse to talk about the reformation that Hezekiah led and the revival that came about as a result of it. It's verse 4. In verse 4, it says begins to talk about what Hezekiah began to do to prepare the people of God for a visitation from God. But I'm going to spend most of my time actually looking at a parallel passage. Because over in 2 Chronicles, there are three chapters devoted to what verse 4 is talking about. Three chapters that give in great detail what verse 4 is trying to describe. And so we're just, if you want to turn over there, 2 uh, Chronicles chapter 29, we're going to look at chapters 29, 30, and 31. And I'm not going to read except for just a couple of verses from there, but if you can follow along as I describe the content, hopefully you can kind of scan the words there and see what Hezekiah did in detail to prepare for the Lord to send a genuine revival among God's people. Second Chronicles, well, first, first and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles originally were one book each. They were one book that was Kings and one book that was Chronicles. It was divided later into two books. Kings really, in a kind of almost uh, detached way, describes the history from the days of Solomon. It begins about the time of the division into Israel and Judah, and it goes through the baptism. Uh, up into the uh, Babylonian captivity after Judah and Israel were destroyed. First and Second Chronicles covers the same period, more or less. But it has a different agenda to it. Just like we have four different Gospels that tell the history of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, we've got two accounts of that period between Solomon and the captivity. And the reason we have two accounts by God's provision is so that we can see what First and Second Kings describes in a more or less uh, historian-type way from kind of a theological perspective. Chronicles gives us interpretation, so to speak, and emphasizes a lot of positive things that First and Second Kings doesn't emphasize because it's trying to point out how God is being faithful to his covenant promises to his people and particularly the promise to sit a son of David on the throne to reign over the kingdom. And that's what you see in First and Second Chronicles. And so that's why the writer of Second Chronicles takes three chapters to cover what Second Kings chat covers in one verse. So let's go there. And the first thing we're going to see, there's four different elements to this Reformation and revival. The first element is the cleaning of God's house. A time of national repentance. Look at, and I'm going to have you flip back to chapter 18 in Second Kings for a second. Keep your finger in Second Chronicles 29. But back in chapter 18, verse 4, it says that Hezekiah removed the high places. Now, if you know the history of Judah and Israel, you know that that's a highly significant statement that is made. He removed the high places. These were the Babylonian, actually not the Babylonian, the Canaanite worship sites 
around the land, particularly there was one in Dan and Bethel where the two golden calves were set up by King Jeroboam in Israel. But these, there were other high places. What these were were pagan worship sites that the people of Judah and Israel turned into what their version of biblical worship was, which was paganism combined with what the scriptures required in terms of sacrifices and offerings to Yahweh. And so, again, it was this mixed religion, a lot of paganism, a little bit of truth, and it was all unacceptable to the Lord. But these high places were so popular with the people that it's kind of like the third rail of that political day. You know, we talk about you can't touch Social Security because it's way too popular to the people. You can't make any changes. That's the way it was with these high places in the religious life of Israel. You couldn't touch them. Hezekiah was the only one. He tore them down and got rid of them. And then it goes on to say in verse 4 that he destroyed all the sacred pillars and the Asherah poles. In other words, what he's trying to say is that Hezekiah got rid of all of the traces of idolatry and paganism that had filled the land. Got rid of all of them. Gave no quarter, no opportunity for idolatry and false worship to take place. In verse 4, at the end of verse 4, there's an interesting historical note there. That he destroyed... The bronze serpent. You remember the bronze serpent? Back when Israel was in the wilderness and they were acting in unbelief and grumbling and God sent a warning judgment into their midst in the form of fiery serpents, as the text says. And these serpents caused the death of many of the people of Israel. After the plague of death broke out, then God said to Moses, make a bronze serpent, place it on a pole, lift it up before the people, and those who will look to that symbol of grace in the midst of judgment will be healed. And they were. Here we are all these many years later, and the bronze serpent is still around. We hadn't heard anything of it since that time. But what we find out here is they had turned it into a relic. They had turned it into an idol. Remember back in the Middle Ages, they claimed that they had all these objects from the ministry and life of Jesus, from the cross, from the tomb. They had all these objects, and people would worship them, treat them like lucky charms as part of the corrupt religion. Well, this is what was going on with the bronze serpent. They were worshiping. They were making offerings to an idol. This speaks to why the second commandment was given to us. Don't make graven images. Don't associate your worship with objects or places. Don't do it. Only the objects that were instructed and designed by God himself and the place, the temple that God designed and instructed himself, only those may be used in worship in the old covenant. Do not make for yourself any other images. Do not tie objects to worship. And it still is such a relevant issue today. We have such a tendency to want to not look to the one true God who's the creator and redeemer, but to look to objects that can channel God's power and bring us God's blessings. And so we end up praying to crucifixes and icons and statues instead of seeking the one true God. And so Hezekiah recognized what was being done. 
and he destroyed it. It might have, you know, you think we'd love to have the, for archaeological value the bronze serpent that Moses made, but he destroyed it because it was being abused in worship. In 2 Chronicles 29, verse 3, it says something very simple, but boy, what a statement it makes. It says he opened the doors of the temple. Do you know what that says? The temple doors had been boarded shut. The temple had been ignored and neglected and left and unmaintained. They were going to high places and altars and Asherah poles and pillars to pray to Yahweh and all these other false gods, and they weren't even using the temple. It was all boarded up. So he opened the doors of the temple. In verse 16 of Second Chronicles 29, it says that the priests and the Levites brought out of the temple all the uncleanness that they found. I'm sure he means that in two senses, both the physical uncleanness, you know, of building that hadn't been used for who knows how long, you know, rat droppings and dust and dirt and, you know, cobwebs, you know, got rid of all the physical uncleanness, but also the spiritual uncleanness, all of the things that all the kings and false priests had introduced into the false worship in prior days, they got rid of all the traces of idolatry and paganism as well. He cleaned house. Verse 18 of chapter 29 of 2 Corinthians says that they cleaned up also the furnishings and restored all the furnishings that God had instructed and designed for the temple, the altars, the table of showbread, the utensils. They got the house ready. It was a preparation. It was a part, an important part of the Reformation. It was, a, it was a preparation for God to send revival. The house of God had to be cleaned, made ready, restored to its original state, But the house was clean, the demons were gone, but it needed to be filled now. Remember what Jesus said about cleaning out the house? When he's talking about casting out demons, but not filling it with something or someone, the demons will come back. And so that's what the people had to do, is they had to look for God to fill this house with his presence, with real worship, and that's the next step. They restored biblical worship, not the the syncretistic, worldly, pagan worship that they had been pursuing in the past, but the worship that God had revealed in his word. Beginning in 2 Chronicles 29, verse 20, it says that Hezekiah had all the burnt offerings and sin offerings restarted according to the law. In verse 24, it says it's to make atonement for all Israel. Now think about this for a second. They hadn't been offering the sacrifices that the Lord had prescribed for worship. Under the old covenant, a believer could not come and worship God without the blood of a sacrifice being shed on their behalf. They had not offered the sacrifices. You know what that says about their consciousness of sin. They had not recognized their sin, their need of forgiveness. They had not seen the depth, the horrific ugliness of their sin before a holy God and sought God's prescription of the blood of a sacrifice to substitute for their shedding of their own blood. They had not sought it. They had not been aware of their sin. They had not recognized their sin. You know, the message that this sends to us today is that, and I know this from history, you study biblical history, you study church history, the history of God's people all the way back to the beginning. When God sends revival to his people, he always sends a deep and powerful sense of sin, of conviction of sin, of shame and guilt, 
how ugly and horrific their sin is before a holy God. This always comes as the first step of the Spirit entering into his people and renewing his people in revival. And when you don't see this overwhelming consciousness of sin, then don't look for the Spirit's involvement in that worship because that's how the Spirit begins to send revival. The other things that Hezekiah did to prepare for revival, you see in chapter 29, 2 Chronicles 29, beginning in verse 25, it says that they restored the singing of the Psalms of David, accompanied by the instruments of David, to the worship in the temple. They hadn't been singing the songs that God had given to the Old Testament church. And that's a great way to prepare for revival is to bring biblical content back to the singing of God's people because now they're going to be singing the songs that reflected the heart of David who was a man after God's own heart. They would be singing songs of faith. They would be singing songs of trust in the covenant. These are the songs of the covenant. They'd be singing about redemption. They'd be singing about forgiveness and joy. Rejoicing in God's provision, his sovereignty, his redemption. That's how Hezekiah prepared the people for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon them. He restored to them the biblical content of their worship. Then in chapter 30 of 2 Chronicles, it says that Hezekiah, notice, he invited all of Judah, but he also invited all of the remnant of people, the people of Israel that still lived in the region that had been the northern kingdom of Israel, up in Samaria. These apostate people, the, the, remember that the king of Assyria left the lowest class people in the land and then mixed in a lot of other pagan people among them. He, he invited the people to come to Jerusalem and to worship with them and to celebrate the Passover for the first time in a very, very long time. Most of the people from the north mocked the messengers that he sent to invite them, but a few came. Praise God, a few came to celebrate the Passover in a biblical manner again. You know what the Passover was? The Passover was God's way of binding himself to his people. In the covenant. That was the, the, the thing that marked them as the covenant people of God, is that he had them put the blood of the Passover lamb over the doorway so that the angel of death would pass over their households and then bring judgment upon the households of Egypt so that they could be delivered and released from bondage and slavery and death and oppression in Egypt. He could call them to himself at Mount Sinai in the wilderness and bind himself to them in a covenant that marriage is a representation of, that kind of, I will be your God, you will be my people, I commit myself to you, a relationship of grace that they entered into by faith that led to their life of obedience to the lordship of the God who redeemed them. They came to celebrate the Passover. You understand the sacrifices and the Passover? That's the gospel of the Old Testament. That's the gospel. And so when we talk about, if you want revival in the church today, you've got to have a gospel-centered worship service because that's what happened here. They brought the gospel to the center of their religious life. They instituted the sacrifices again, which screams blood atonement, which points to the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And they instituted the Passover. And Christ is our Passover. The Passover beautifully portrays the person and work of Christ. 
You see, this is why in the Old Testament, they weren't allowed to change even one little jot or tittle about what was written about how the temple was to be built, how the sacrifices were to be offered, how the priesthood was to be dressed, how the priesthood was to act, how the offerings, the thank offerings, how... You know, even the incense, the mixture of, of chemicals that produce the incense, they all had to be exactly according to God's word. And if they didn't do it according to God's word, they'd be struck down dead in many cases. Why did God care so much about the details? Because all of those things pointed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of those things pointed to the person and work of Christ. It's the same exact concern for exact obedience and exact representation that Paul is talking about in Galatians chapter 1 he says when he says if anyone comes to you and preaches to you any other gospel let him be accursed may God strike him dead because all those things were pointing to Christ so how did Hezekiah prepare the Old Testament people of God for reformation and revival he brought the biblical psalms back into worship and the psalms are all about Christ He brought the sacrifices back into the worship, which are all about Christ and his work. He brought the Passover back into the worship of evil's God, which is all about Christ and his work. It's no wonder that God sent revival, that he poured out his spirit and made his presence known there in a powerful way. And that's what we see is the praising of the Lord from the heart that is the evidence of a true revival having arrived. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 21. It says there, the Levites and priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with all their might to the Lord. Singing from the heart, their heart, soul, mind, strength, praising God. Isn't that the kind of worship you want? Isn't that why you came here this morning? You want to experience that kind of whole life, whole heart, every part of you being caught up in a vision of the glory of God that fills your soul and satisfies you like nothing else on earth can do. That's what you wanted when you came here this morning, whether you experienced it or not. I pray that's why you're here. Grace-filled, thankful, joyful, exuberant worship is what the born-again soul most deeply longs for. Look at the description given at the end of chapter 30, verses 26 and 27. So there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Then the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came to his holy habitation in heaven. That's revival. These people that were on the verge of being wiped out in God's judgment, God visited them. And he visited them in response to Hezekiah's faithfulness to prepare for that revival. And I want to point out one more, the last step of what revival led to, and it's giving to the Lord from the heart. Look at chapter 31. Really all of chapter 31 is about the response of the people having been filled with praise for their Redeemer. Listen to how they respond to his grace. In chapter 31, I'll read in verse, beginning in verse 5. And as soon as the command was spread abroad, the people of Israel gave in abundance the first fruits of grain, wine, oil, honey, and of all the produce of the field. And they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. And the people of Israel and Judah who lived in the cities of Judah also brought in the tithe of the cattle and sheep and the tithe of the dedicated things that had been dedicated to the Lord their God and laid them in heaps, piles. goes on to say later that there was a large amount of, of 
heaps left after all the needs of the temple and the ministry were done. You see, that's what revival does. Revival changes thoughts, hearts, worldview, mindset, but more than that, it changes priorities. And all of a sudden, your life is about seeking the kingdom of God first, not the things of this world. And when God's people's hearts are revived, the work of the ministry never suffers for lack of resources. You know, we're going to be asking for this congregation to give money to a building project later this fall. And I'll tell you right now, I hate fundraisers. My plan right now is to have a prayer service to ask the Lord to bring revival. Even though there's a lot of the work of the Spirit going on here now, we need a lot more of it. We need to ask the Lord to bring revival so that people give out of love for the Lord and out of a desire to build his kingdom. So we're not going to be twisting arms. We're going to be praying for God to lay that upon the hearts here so that the kingdom can be manifest in powerful ways in State College, at Penn State, in Center County, and beyond. Here are the steps of reformation and revival that Hezekiah laid out for us. You begin by cleaning house. You begin with repentance. You begin by throwing out the idolatry and the love of this world. Secondly, you come back to biblical worship. Let the word of God be at the center of everything that is done in worship. Let the gospel be at the center of everything that is done in worship. Because when the word of God is faithfully proclaimed and the gospel is magnified and proclaimed powerfully, lives are changed and the Holy Spirit visits. And when the Holy Spirit visits, deep, soul-satisfying worship takes place. The kind of worship that changes your life. The kind of worship that permeates your life. The kind of worship that becomes your life. All things done to the glory of God. And out of that, you really, because you love the Lord and love his kingdom, you seek his kingdom first. And you make not just your resources, but your, your heart and your life available to him to do his work. That's real revival. The church is now the temple of the Lord. The church of Jesus Christ. His kingdom is spiritual, not material or political. But revival still comes the same way. But we can't program revival. I can't, you know, I'd love to put out a big sign in front of the church that says, October 1st, revival at Oakwood Presbyterian Church. I'd love to advertise a revival and invite everybody to come to it. But you can't program revival. You can only prepare for it. You can do the kind of things that Hezekiah did in terms of calling people to repentance and bringing the scriptures to the foundation of everything you do and making the gospel at the center of everything you can do. You can do all that, but the Holy Spirit is like the wind. He blows wherever he wishes, and he's sovereign, and he may bring revival, he may not. All we can do is prepare for it. Let me talk to you, just in closing, just a little bit about what went on in Hezekiah's heart. What made Hezekiah such a change agent here? What drove him and motivated him to take the risks? And these were huge risks that he took to prepare the people for revival. 
Look at verses 5 and 6 of 2 Kings 18. Back to 2 Kings 18, verses 5 and 6. It says that Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him. We're going to see this. We're going to keep coming back to this in the next few chapters. The defining characteristic of Hezekiah was trust. He trusted in the Lord. We're going to see that illustrated in so many ways in his life, but especially here. He trusted in the Lord. The word trust in the original Hebrew, it literally, if you were to translate it literally, it means he threw all of his weight upon the Lord. That's what it means in the original language. He threw all his weight upon the Lord. Reminds me when I was a kid. We had a pond on our property when I grew up. And when the winter came, we would ice skate on that pond. But in the beginning of the winter, when when one of us kids got old enough, that was one of the scariest jobs we had all year, was to go and test the ice to see if it was ready to to be skated on. And so you would step onto that ice, and you weren't quite sure whether in a few moments you're going to be doused in cold water or not says here that Hezekiah threw all his weight upon the Lord. He jumped onto the promises of the covenant, the promises of God. He jumped onto them with both feet because he believed that God was who he claimed to be and that his promises were trustworthy. Think about how much more we know about the promises of God and the work of Jesus Christ. Think about how much more we know than Hezekiah knew. How much greater should our faith be? Not only do we have greater revelation and fulfillment of these great promises. We've seen who Christ is. We've seen his death on the cross. We've seen his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of God. We have all the promises of the New Testament. We have all that, but more than that, we have much more of a track record of God's faithfulness. God has done so much more, not only in biblical history, but in church history, to show himself faithful to his promises. Why wouldn't we jump on his promises with both feet and really trust in him? It goes on to talk about Hezekiah's trust in verse 6 to say he held fast to the Lord. That word held fast in the original Hebrew is the same word that you find in Genesis 2 for how Adam, the first man, was to cleave or hold fast to his wife in a covenant of marriage. That's what the trust is like. It's like entering into an eternity-long relationship with your creator and redeemer, You're married to him. You are the church of Jesus Christ. Christ is the bridegroom. You are married to him. You're in that kind of an eternal, permanent covenant. He held fast because he trusted in the covenant promises. And then it says he did not depart from following him. That shows that holding fast or clinging to God in faith is not a static thing. It's a progressive thing. It's something you you have to pursue the Lord. You, You have to drive yourself to get closer to him. Because of love for him. That's the kind of trust that Hezekiah had. Paul says in Philippians 3, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And then finally it says that the result of this trust in the heart of Hezekiah is that he kept the commandments the Lord had commanded Moses. Trust produces obedience. Obedience that isn't based in trust is a superficial obedience. It's not a real obedience, but the kind of obedience that the Lord blesses and uses, the kind of of obedience that is the fruit of genuine faith is obedience based in trust. You obey because you trust God to be who he said he is and to do what he said he would do. Finally, in verse 7, it says, and the Lord was with him. Only says that about two kings in the Old Testament. 
David and Hezekiah. The only two kings that that phrase is used to describe them. The Lord was with them. It says, wherever he went, he prospered. He challenged Assyria. He refused to serve Assyria, but, to, but he committed himself to serve the Lord. And he conquered the Philistines, which hadn't happened since the days of David. Conquered them from border to border. I'm sure that many people in Hezekiah's day thought, you know, this is the golden age. The greater son of David has come. He's just as great as David. He, he's just as faithful as David. He trusts God like David did. This must be the, the son of David that was promised in the covenant. The Messiah has come. I'm sure there were many in Hezekiah's day who thought that. But Hezekiah, as we will find out near the end of his life, was a sinner just like you and me. He also failed. He also needed the blood of sacrifice to atone for his sin. You see, Hezekiah, the sacrifices that were instituted under Hezekiah could not take away sin. They only pointed to the one who could. Hezekiah couldn't deliver anyone from our greatest enemies, which are sin and death. The blood of the Passover lamb, the blood of the sacrifices, pointed to a final atonement to come, an atonement that we have seen fulfilled at the cross of Jesus Christ. As Hebrews point, the book of Hebrews points out, the Old Testament, made it, Old Testament made it clear that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, but it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Our great high priest has gone before God with his own blood and offered it as an atonement for our sins. And those who look to him in faith are cleansed, made clean. The guilt and shame is taken away, and you're given the gift of Christ's righteousness. So that God is reconciled to you forever. We look not to a bronze snake, snake on a pole for deliverance, but to the perfect Son of God who became a curse for us, that the curse of sin and death might be taken away from us. Do you long for revival? Wouldn't you have liked to have been a part of this revival? Wouldn't you have liked to have been a part of the great revivals in church history? We are living in a dark age. The world around us is filled with paganism and and immorality and corruption. And the church is filled with a lot of apostasy and corruption. But God is sovereign and he sends revival by his spirit where he wishes. The best we can do is prepare for it. Prepare for it the same way that Hezekiah did. By turning from our sin. Calling each other to repentance looking to see in what ways we have given ourselves over to a love of the world and to worship the idols of this world and to cleanse our own lives and to cleanse the church of these idolatries. And then secondly, to make sure that our worship and therefore all of our lives is driven by faithfulness to the word of God and the word of God alone and the focus of the word of God, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then look Pray for God to pour out that spirit of trust in us that Hezekiah had. That clinging, pursuing, submissive, obedient trust that Hezekiah had asked the Lord repeatedly over and over, Lord, give me that kind of trust. Begin revival within me that I might help others to experience it as well. And then you have that spirit-given passion for worship and the give of yourselves and your resources for the sake of the kingdom and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It begins with prayer. 
So I guess I'm, I'm concluding this. The only way I can conclude is challenging you as a congregation of God's people to pray. Pray for reformation, the kind of reformation that Hezekiah led, and pray for the Holy Spirit to, bring, to pour out revival upon his people, whether small or great, that we might find the joy that the people of Judah found in the days of King Hezekiah. Let's pray. Father, you have a lot of people all over the world trying to manipulate you to do according to their agendas and to meet their selfish and worldly needs. Lord, we want to come to you and lay ourselves at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ to give of ourselves completely, to proclaim our trust in the risen one who has conquered sin and death, and to give of ourselves completely in all that we have for the sake of advancing his kingdom. Father, I pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us as individuals and upon us as a congregation of your people and upon all other Bible-based, gospel-centered churches in State College, in Center County, in Pennsylvania, in the United States, and around the world. May we see a great move of the Spirit in our day. And may we look to the Spirit to give us hope and nowhere else. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.